Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to another episode of Second Take Cinema coming at you from a very sunny South End on Sea. A South End on Sea that is too sunny. It is too damn hot. I need it to cool down right now. You're listening to this in October, but we're actually recording this in June. And um, I obviously don't know what will happen by October, but at the minute, we're in the middle of a heat wave. Yep. I, I fucking hope we're not still in the middle of this heat wave by October because I can't handle that, Rory. <laughs> anyway. Global warming, Jamie. Oh. <laughs> anyway, we're coming at you from Impala Films headquarters. As always, I am your host, Jamie Evans, and I am joined, as always, by Mr. Rory Jocelyn. Yeah. And this is the finale of our month-long Halloween deep dive special. Tank Christ! <laughs> oh, boy. What did you say? Tank Christ. It's oh, a, Tank Christ yeah. in an Irish accent. Yeah, a, a, a very crap in, Irish accent. And unlike, you know, traditional wisdom, there was like, save the best for last. We didn't do that this time. No. This time we decided to save the worst for last. We decided to take a look at the two worst films, in my opinion, in the Halloween franchise, yeah. uh, to give them a second chance to see if my opinion has changed. It hasn't. Ladies and gentlemen, buckle up and join us as we look at 2007's Halloween and 2009's Halloween 2, directed by Rob Zombie. So we're starting with 2007's Halloween, which, as I said, is directed by Rob Zombie. This film is billed as a remake of the 1978 original. It kind of is, but it's also kind of not. This is kind of two films smashed together, but we'll get there. So this movie's written and directed by Rob Zombie. It stars Tyler Mayne as Michael Myers, the adult Michael Myers, Malcolm McDowell as Dr. Sam Loomis, Scout Taylor Compton as Laurie Strode, Daig Ferch as the young Michael Myers. I apologise if I am spelling uh, pronouncing that incorrectly and of course Rob Zombie's wife Sherry Moon Zombie as Big Mama Myers um, because she's in every film he does so fair enough isn't it sweet that he loves his wife that much no. and he puts her in everything oh a bit like Mila Jovovich and W.S. Anderson the difference is Sherry, <laughs> Sherry Moon Zombie kind no she can't act fair enough <laughs> So this movie was released in 2007. It's a Dimension Films production, which does oh, mean... Oh, said it's a Dementia Films Which <laughs> does mean that there is a bit of involvement from the gruesome twosome, the Weinstein brothers, but we'll breeze right on past that. This film was made for a budget of $15 million, Woo! and it made $80.4 million. So quite the success. Halloween 2 would not enjoy such a success. But if we look at the reception over here... 
So on its opening day, this Halloween film immediately grossed, uh, immediately surpassed the opening weekend grossers for the original Halloween 2, the original Halloween 3, uh, Halloween 4, Halloween 5, and Halloween 6. Uh, so it was a big success for the franchise. Um, but if we just look at its critical response, um, it holds a measly 28% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 4.4 out of 10. The consensus reads, Rob Zombie doesn't bring many new ideas to the table in Halloween, making it another bloody disappointment for fans of the franchise. By comparison, Metacritic calculated a 47 out of 100 rating, um, which indicates mixed or average reviews. Uh, Peter Hartlaub of the San Francisco Chronicle felt Zombie was successful in both putting his own spin on Halloween while at the same time paying tribute to the Carpenter film. He thought Zombie managed to make Michael Myers almost sympathetic as a child, but that the last third of the film felt more like a montage of scenes with Halloween slipping into slasher film logic. Nathan Lee of the Village Voice disagreed with Hartlaub, feeling that Halloween may have placed too much emphasis on providing sympathy for Michael Myers, but that it succeeded in deepening Carpenter's vision without rooting out its fear. Uh, film critic Matthew Turner believed the first half of the film, which featured the prequel elements with Michael as a child, was better than the second half, which was the remake half. In short, he stated the performances from the cast were superb, with Malcolm McDowell being perfectly cast as Dr. Loomis, but that the film lacked the scare value of Carpenter's original. Meanwhile, Jamie Russell from BBC News agreed that the first half of the film works better than the last half, stating that Zombie's expanded backstory on Michael was surprisingly effective, also agreeing that McDowell was perfectly cast as Loomis, but that Zombie failed to deliver the supernatural dread that Carpenter created for Michael in the 1978 original. And then, just towards the end, writing 11 years after the film's release for the Washington Post, Sonny Bunch speculated that the blowback theory of Michael Myers may have been comforting for a post-9-11 America mired in the Iraq war, what? trying to get a sense of how evil comes to be. But it's deeply dissatisfying as the peg on which to hang a slasher movie Sorry, villain. Sorry, that sounds like someone really trying to hang their, like, their political hat on a film where it's not neat. Like, yeah. There's nothing about Iraq or related to Iraq in this yeah. or 9-11 like like What's, that's someone who just focused that, on 9-11 yeah. and went oh but this kind of in this film but it's like there's none of it oh no I, I do get what he's trying to say I think actually okay maybe you can um, explain it to me so I think what he's trying to say is that the film has aged badly. I think he's saying that in the post-9-11 America... Well, like 9-11 has aged badly. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think what he's saying is that because this film presents, as we said when we were watching it, a fairly, uh, it's a fairly logical, very base backstory where Michael is evil because of his upbringing. They're saying that that is comforting to post-9-11 people because there's logic to it. The family have done evil to Michael, which is why Michael becomes evil. They right, may so have... it sanitizes the potential, quote-unquote, evil of an American. Yeah, it sanitizes the fact that evil can just happen. Bad things can just happen. It seems to ignore the fact that America had done a lot of bad things to other countries before 9-11 happened to it. Um, and after. But what, what they're saying is that now that we've got more distance from that, looking back... It just feels very base and very unsatisfying, which we agreed on that. It, it does feel unsatisfying. Um, it feels I, flat. I think that uh, trying to suggest that 
any of the writing in this film was in any way a reaction to the fear from 9-11 and the impending, if not ongoing, Iraq war at the time. Uh, was giving too much credit to the writing, which is way too bad to have even considered taking on any sort of subtext in that form. Oh, no, I certainly don't think that any subtext... I think, that, I think that's them bringing their own baggage to Maybe. the table. I don't think any subtext was deliberately added, but I have always been a believer in, as it's one of the few things I agree on Tarantino with, um, you write the text and the subtext happens naturally. I, okay. don't th I don't think it's possible to have no subtext because... What for about the, for Game Box 1.0? Even that. What, you because found subtext? <laughs> I didn't find it, but it's there somewhere. Because for the same reason we've said before, you and I could write the same story. Like, we could sit down and say, right, Red, Red, Little Red Riding Hood. Both write a script about Little Red Riding Hood. Mine would inevitably be different from yours because I've had a different upbringing. I've had different experiences in my life. Okay. So... To a degree, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this film is smart. I'm saying by accident there is some subtext in it because it's impossible not to have subtext in anything created by humans. Sure, but... In my uh, opinion. I don't think it has got 9-11 themes in it no, or No, because like to that. suggest that it would do would mean that even if it wasn't intentional by Rob Zombie, he would have to have been thinking about it while he wrote the script. To be fair... I mean, I'm not... It's hard for us, isn't it? Because we're not Americans. Yeah. Like, I think we... It's hard for us to understand, as much as we try, how monumental of an event 9-11 is. I really didn't think we'd be talking about 9-11 in a Rob Zombie's Halloween show. That's not show. our fault, it's that other guy. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> this, this, this was put into the pot by myself, as all the Halloween ones were. Um, for those who are just catching up with us, the reason we've done this is because we had a fantastic opportunity here, which was Rory has only ever seen the original Halloween. He hadn't seen the other ones. And I only saw that last year with you. Yeah. And seeing as Halloween has rebooted its timeline a few times, I thought it would be really interesting to show the rebooted timelines to someone who can watch them without the impact of having seen Halloween 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 and 8. Um, and see how they felt. So, so far we have covered the whole of the David Gordon Green trilogy. And we're wrapping up with the Rob Zombie trilogy. The reason I chose to do David Gordon Green first is, well, quite frankly, because they're better films. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, that's the reason. Yeah. And I didn't want to put Rory off of Michael Myers as a character by showing him uh, this, which I'm not, is yeah, so not a good movie. No, so this is trash uh, and should be conceived to the bin for all eternity. What the... happened to trying to be nice? <laughs> I was trying to be nice, but I really hated what, it. What has Bob Zombie ever done to you? To be fair, I like his music, but this was absolute garbage. And I, uh, I just, uh, I'll, look, when we get into it proper, I'll try and be nicer. But so, I, honestly, I, I hated this. And yeah. if you'd shown me this first, I probably would have rejected watching the, the other trilogy because yeah. everything about this film is everything that made me not watch slasher films for yeah. so long. Yeah. Everything, like, if you'd shown me this film, I'd be like, yeah, that's a slasher film. They're all like that. I'm j and I'd just reject the genre because, I mean, if, if what comes to mind in the slasher film is this, this is garbage. Right. It's, it, it'd, be, it'd be like me showing you, what's the genre you hate? Pray for the Wildcats, what? Yeah. So Biker movies, I hate biker movies. Yeah. But so if I... And video game movies. Yeah. And anything where tech is a fact. You don't hate video Any game movies? Anything you can add punk to the end of, I hate. Well, like cyberpunk? Yes. No! I do, I do, generally speaking, hate technical, tech, 
sci-fi type movie. No, I like sci- this thing. There's a difference. That's a technology movie. Yeah, it's a fine line for me. So I like sci-fi as in set in the future, robots, things like that. I don't like when it's AI is the villain and stuff like that because it's very rare, not, not impossible, but very rare that those films are any good. I mean, AI Sometimes as the villain is a very particular subset of sci-fi. But yeah, that's, it's what not even that's, a, that's what I'm saying. That's a specific subset of film that yeah, I hate. But that's not punk. Anyway. Like slasher is a specific subset of a genre that you hate. I don't hate horror. That's what I'm saying. No, no, that's what I'm saying. Slasher yeah. is a subset of horror. Yes. So I don't hate all sci-fi. Yeah. I just hate AIs. Right. You don't hate horror. You're just not a big fan of slashers. Yes. So... Because unfortunately, most of them are brainless. Yeah, most of them are this. Um, A this lot is- are better than this, to be fair. This is a particularly bad one, in okay. my opinion. Um, Largely due in part, and let's start here, with the fact that this is two movies smushed together. But it's still too long. I agree, I agree. But what I'm saying is... Straight off the bat, this film hamstrings itself. Yeah. Because it's trying to be both a prequel and a remake. Now, I understand from interviews I've listened to with Rob Zombie, that wasn't his decision. He wanted to just do a prequel, and Dimension Films basically went, no, 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 it's got to be a remake as well. Much like when we covered Welcome to Raccoon City on VGMP, we agreed that one of the things that hamstrung that film was that it was trying to cram two films into one yeah. film. It's the story of Resident Evil 1 and 2 smushed. Yeah. yeah, and similarly, this is trying to do that as well. Now, the, the difference here, that I think we would both agree on this, but tell me if I'm wrong, the first film this is trying to be, a prequel is one of the most unnecessary films ever conceived of. You don't need a backstory for Michael Myers. No, one of the main issues it has... uh, So let's just start with... Let's take it as two halves, a tale of two halves. Um, So this first half, the bit that was... (laughs) Uh, The the first half of this, which is the bit that everyone that you just read from, was the bit that they praised, which was the ending of the backstory to Michael Myers. I can see why, because at least that's original content. Yes. Rob Zombie, because inevitably the second half, you have to compare to Carpenter. And I think even Rob Zombie would admit that was never a comparison he was going to win. Yeah. But the thing is, is but taking just this first half, it's basically all crap and unnecessary. And it's not because necessarily that the because the performances are quite good um it's not to do with that it's to do with the fact that it lasts about an hour to an hour and a half of the film's run to, oh no an hour and 15 minutes so if the, if the film's runtime is this first half so what what are we counting and, everything up to him escaping the asylum yeah yeah um but all of that backstory is unnecessary to tell the story and the themes of the character and to the point where um like it tries to create a backstory as to why he wears masks and it spends a good 20 minutes explaining why he's wearing masks and why he's got masks and that he keeps making masks and it's just like mate i see he's a psycho and he murders people's wearing a mask i don't need to sit there and go but why is he wearing a mask what does the mask mean he's wearing a mask why, it's fucking it? scary yeah it is they and every little thing that you can, um, like, just by seeing it, no one watched the first Halloween and went, I don't get why he wears your mask, though. Yeah. You know, nobody was asking that question. To spend 20 minutes on it yeah. is ridiculous. And it, it's essentially, the, the irony being that it's two films smushed together, and this first half of a film was achieved exactly as well, if not better, in the first, what, five or ten minutes of the original Halloween? 
Oh yeah, five minutes. Yeah, and it's it, brevity. The, the you can tell one. that story with the brevity, and that's the thing that modern filmmaking often gets wrong. So a good example of this to split away from this, Ghostbusters. Uh, I saw someone online give a comparison of the first Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2016. Okay. And it was the scene where they introduced the power packs that they used to, you know, blast the ghosts. In the first film, it's a short two-minute scene inside of a lift when they go to their first job. They explain what the proton pack is, how dangerous it is, and what it, do- like, how, what it does and how it works. All in two minutes. Really concise but well enough. And it's not all just like these proton packs. What we'll do is we'll shoot them at the monster and then we'll crap that and we'll move it. It's not all that. It's not just dialogue. It's passe dialogue between the two, between the three actors. And then the bits you need that are vital is like, why would we be scared? Each of us has an unlicensed nuclear reactor on our back. Bam. Okay, I know that this is dangerous. And then right at the end, Ray goes, okay, we're nearly there. Turn me on. Uh, Egon switches it on, you hear it go, and you see him slowly crawl to the back of the elevator carriage, as if that would make any difference. Um, And it's quite funny, and you get all of what's needed. This is a dangerous item, it's not, you know, and it's untested and all this shit. You get it in two minutes. Mm. In the 2016 all-female remake, that scene is like seven to ten minutes long. Right. And it's split into multiple scenes. So you get the first bit where the, the, the smart one has built it all. And you know, look what I've built. I've built these guns. Well, what are they for? Well, we're going to use them to catch ghosts. He sort of explains it. And then they do a test outside where one of them, uh, which is Melissa McCarthy's character, fires the proton pack. And then she's like lifted in the air as if she was, had the weight of a helium balloon. And is thrown around while firing this thing. And they're all sitting again. Wow, that could be dangerous. Maybe we should get her to stop. Which is completely out of character for all of them. And uh, neutralizes the danger of the device. Instantly, because apparently she's firing an unlicensed nuclear reactor beam and she's being thrown around. She can't control it. It's going wild. And they're just like, wow, well, that's silly. But they're not moving. They're not trying to stop it. It's just played as a laugh. And it takes 10 minutes to do what is done better in a two minute sequence in the original. Much better, much quicker. And it's a one take in the original, not a multiple scene thing. Yeah. Um, And this version of Halloween has the same problem. It basically takes all the elements that made the first Halloween good uh, and all the bits that make Michael Myers the mystery he is. And instead of going, well, there's a mask, figure it out, he's a psycho kills, right? And goes, but the mask, what it might symbolize and what it does is... and And you're like, fuck off. I don't need 20 minutes of this shit. I got it without it the first time. Because we... The film doesn't achieve what I think it's trying to achieve. What he's trying to achieve here is for a sympathetic look at Michael Myers. But one, why on earth would I want that? Yeah. Like, in my slasher villain. But two, it fails to do that. I don't feel sorry for Michael because the film, not to say it should be even longer, but the film already starts with him killing animals. Yeah. like, he's not sympathetic at the beginning. Yes, his home life clearly blows. Yep. Um, and it, I must admit, I find the opening to this film really difficult. I had forgotten that it literally starts with just Screaming. pages upon pages of people effing and blinding at each other yeah. um, around a dinner table. And it, oh, God, yeah, it is. It's tripe. And the other thing as well is, the other thing that doesn't help with the 
sympathizing with Mike Myers in this is not just that it starts with the effing and jeffing, etc., etc., whatever, fine. The problem it has is, yeah, as you say, he starts off that we find out he's already been murdering animals, which is shot, not sympathetic. The first shot of him is cl- is him cleaning blood off of a scalpel. Yeah. Because he's just killed his pet rat. Yeah. So you've got all of that, but then you've got the... Uh, it then keeps jumping from, oh, sympathise with him, he has a bad home life, and then he goes to school and he gets bullied, but then he just basically tells the teacher he's... F you, blah, 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 blah. So he then gets, you know, treated like he's a douchebag. And then he goes and kills some animals. And then he comes back and he gets bullied and you're meant to sympathise with him. And then he murders a... And it's like, which, like, you need... If you're going to do this, it needs to be a progression. You start off with a bully, like a kid with terrible home life. He gets bullied. And over the course of... Bear in mind that this is way too long anyway. Just utilise your time better. He starts off as a sympathetic kid. He worms his way up. And as the bullies start to get him and he starts to crack, that's when he murders his pet rat. And that's when he starts to test the killing that to just try and, like, he's, maybe he starts off with cutting himself. And when he realizes that's not enough to ease the pain, he then kills his pet rat and finds that that eases him a bit more. Mm. So then when he goes to school and he gets bullied, he then murders the, ki- the school bully, which never comes back up, by the way. Um, and well, then the fun thing about, uh, you slowly build towards yeah. the psycho of Mike Myers. You don't just throw back and forth. Oh, he's sympathetic. Oh, he's crazy killer. Oh, he's sympathetic. Well, oh, he's to, crazy killer. If we're trying to be realistic, most serial killers, actually, their first kill happens by accident. Yeah. In reality. Yeah. Um, and then they realize they like it. Yeah, there's a thrill. Like, uh, uh, What's the endorphins are yeah. released when they kill? And they're like, oh, this is great. Yeah. And they go back for it. It's almost like a drug. Yeah, so basically none of the sympathetic stuff works. No. This is this is quintessential Rob Zombie here, which is it's a trailer trash family. Yeah. I don't know what Rob Zombie's life was like. I don't know if maybe this is what he knows. What I do know is that almost every Rob Zombie film I have ever seen, these are the sorts of characters that are in it. Now, that worked fine in House of a Thousand Corpses and The, Dev- the Devil's Rejects because that's what those films are about. They are set... In the South, in redneck country, yep. where people with people who are living in super bad conditions, who are skeevy. This is set in suburban middle class Chicago, or yeah. Illinois. Yeah, yeah. Like th- these characters don't add up. And well, the other thing as well that that really doesn't help is, despite the fact that he's trying to build a sympathetic Mike Myers, none of the characters are sympathetic, and. To be honest, there's not really any characters. So when we get to the second half and we're introduced to Laurie, the old, like, now grown up, because she's a baby in the first half, um, now grown up and living with the, what are they named? The Strodes. The Strodes. Um, her character seems completely off base with the family she's then in. And then when she goes to school with her friends, basically her and her two friends are all just written as girl. Yeah, they're all the same character. Yeah, and so they all say the same sort of thing. They make the same sort of jokes. But And I know that people in friend groups do share those sort of jokes, but there's normally personality differences that make each character unique. It's missing completely from the realisation of these three girls. They're all just girl. Yeah. Like girl who likes cheeky sex humour. That's all they are. Yeah, nothing it, makes either. Nothing makes any of them stand out. No, including Laurie, who should be your lead. Yeah, but she's really just another girl. Yeah, this is this is certainly no Jamie Lee Curtis. No, um, 
it's oh, it's such a tough one because I, I I sympathize very much with Rob Zombie because having read all these interviews and things, I don't want to put all the blame on him. A lot of the blame for this belongs on the producer's shoulders, sure, as well, uh, Bob Weinstein, um, because they they wouldn't stop interfering they couldn't decide what they wanted the soundtrack in this like the the, the overuse of the john carpenter theme i love the john carpenter music oh, from incredible. the original but it's all but over the place it's all over this film in places it doesn't belong it just starts and stops seemingly at random yeah you, you yourself even pointed out there's some bits where it just it'll it be just a cuts. scene and then it'll fade out while the scene is still going on and it just feels really out of place. Yeah. And that's clearly because the studio were like, you've got to put that music in. That's iconic music. You've got to put it in there. Yeah. Um, okay, let's let's talk about our cast then. How do we feel about Daig Fetch as young Michael Myers? Quite a, to be, let's be fair here, quite a heavy role for a child actor. I mean, his performance for what he was given was great and fine. I just don't think he was given much to go with that made any logistical sense script wise it's mostly the script i have issue with with this mm. um i don't like michael myers as a short kurt cobain-esque grungy boy yeah. i don't think that suits the character archetype at all because most I, I, i'll be honest most serial killers tend to come from sort of middle class backgrounds they tend to be well preened they tend to look after themselves mm, well uh, that's not true is it not uh, i'm no, pretty certain no, I'm most super, serial no. killers have come from not most a lot more than you think yes i bear in mind i'm into true crime and all okay. that sort of stuff um most of the ones you, i've heard of like al bundy and that ted bundy ted bundy, not al bundy. <laughs> ted bundy definitely is. but this is what makes ted bundy so unique Ted Bundy right. is from a middle-class, well-to-do family. He was a good-looking man. He was charming. Yeah. Um, that's why it was so weird that he turned out to be a serial killer. If you look at, like, Ed Gein or Jeffrey Dahmer or even um, John it? Wayne Gacy, yeah. they don't look like they take care of themselves. They, oh, okay. they look quite rough. I but thought they did. Okay. You, are, you are right in saying that most times when a serial killer gets caught, everyone's reaction is... Oh, we never saw it coming. It's not usually the person who's walking around dead-eyed like, I hate everything and I want everyone to die. It's not that obvious. I've never seen a grunge serial killer. They, they do exist, but you're right. It's not the norm. Um, <laughs> I murdered them I mean, for Nirvana. The, to be honest, the, <laughs> the closest you're probably thinking of, and you're right in that he's technically not a killer himself, is Charles Manson. Yeah. He was a long-haired rocker dude who technically did not kill anyone himself but you know manipulated others into this cult That's that true. then escalated into a killing thing but yeah i, I get I mean, it my biggest problem with this whole backstory other than the fact that michael myers doesn't need a backstory and you in you inherently ruin the character when you give him a backstory my problem with it is it's so textbook Oh, his parents, he's from a broken home because it's his stepdad. We, we never find out what happened to his real dad, do we? Whether he abandoned his mom or, or what. No. Um, but, oh, he's from this shit home. Oh, he's bullied. Oh, he kills his pets. It just... One immediate fix would be if he accidentally killed that first bully. That immediately makes it better. Yeah, if you um, build up towards the killing, not start off that he's already yeah. murdering an multiple animals. Yeah. And the first kill was accidental. Yeah, it should have been that yeah. he tries to stand up to the bully, shoves him, the bully trips on that branch, yeah. and like cracks his head on a rock or something. Yeah, and dies that way. Yeah. 
something like there's there's little things and it makes me it's one of those things where i look at it and i'm like this looks like it was a first draft mm. because these are things that on a second draft you go yeah you know what actually i think this needs to be tightened up i think this needs to be from doing multiple yes, drafts myself, to, it looks like fair, it's a first draft. To be fair, again, just playing devil's advocate, I have certainly known films where the opposite is true, where the more drafts you go, the messier the film gets. Mm. Um, I did a film called that I've never released and I never will called Fall of the Black Swan, and that definitely had that problem. The first or second draft was the most focused one. Right. And the mistake I made with that, which is probably what happened here, was I started taking feedback from everyone else involved in the film. Right. And they all had wildly different interpretations of what the film should be. I imagine, but again, could be wrong, that this is a product of Rob Zombie wrote a script, Dimension took a look at it with a committee like they do, and... I mean, Harvey and Bob Weinstein are both infamous. I mean, well, Harvey's infamous for something else now. But they've been infamous before this for... They actually call Harvey uh, Harvey Scissorhands in the industry, apparently, you know. Right. Because he cuts things to pieces and rearranges them, uh, both finished films and scripts. Right. Um, I would not be at all surprised if this actually... I, I bet there was a more focused version of this film in an earlier draft. Okay. And... By committee, it's been... Most Marvel films have this problem yeah. where they go through their committee process and come out being less focused than they were when they were first written. Yeah, yeah, a lot of films have that problem. Um, but the reason that I think that it might be the opposite for this is because the intro is so unfocused. Mm. Usually the one thing that gets stronger on redrafts is the intro, yeah. and then it gets messier as it goes along because they go, well, the intro's fine, you do what you want with that because it's just establishing the scene. But act, act two needs more action. We need more murders in this, or we need more of this in this. Act three, we think you should pay off the audience with this sort of result, rather than the one you've given us. Yeah. Usually it's act two and three that suffer from rewrites, not act one. Yeah, Because act, act one is, quote-unquote, just setting the scene, which is important, but at the end of the day, it's not the bit you're going to remember for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, so... That's so, the why I think this was probably unfocused to start with rather yeah. than in just its later drafts. Uh, what do we think of Malcolm McDowell as the new Dr. Loomis? Obviously, big shoes to fill, um, given that Donald Pleasance was a legend of an actor. The, again, the problem isn't Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell is a great actor. He does well with the material he's given. Um, but his character is written like garbage because he's meant to be a top psychiatrist... He specifically takes on Michael Myers as a character because he's he goes to the school where he finds out, after he finds out that Michael Myers has been cutting animals to pieces uh, because he wants to take an interest in the case. And then when Michael Myers goes to the mental home, he goes and becomes his key care worker uh, and psychiatrist. But he notices that Michael Myers keeps on put, making masks. They never take away his ability to make masks, which requires scissors or knives or something to cut the paper you know, and make the papier-mâché he uses for those masks. He's been given all of those tools. He's got fucking uh, paint brushes and stuff with a pointy end on the other side in his bedroom mm. at the mental home. And he keeps on making masks. And Loomis first starts with going, oh, don't, why are you wearing masks? Well, maybe take them off. He's like, I like the masks. So he just lets him wear it and make more and wear them more and more. And it's like, 
Mate, if you were an actual psychologist, you would take away his ability to make and wear the masks until he's able to find himself through therapy. Mm. You don't let him keep wearing the masks where he can disappear into himself. That's like psychology 101. I mean, again, I, I don't like this film, and yet I feel I'm having to play devil's advocate here so that it's a balanced episode. <laughs> um, could it be, because could it be the opposite of that, which is... The whole point is Michael has to give the masks up on his own and taking them away from him by force will only serve to alienate him from his therapist. So does he need 50,000 of them dotted around his bedroom? No, I agree. And does he need potential weapons in his bedroom to keep no, making no, no. said masks? No, no, I agree masks? with that. I agree with that. But I'm just saying is that maybe what they were thinking when they said we're then not going to take the one masks mask. off him. Because that's a bit like... Um, Obviously, I work in a hospital, and when we have, like, dementia patients and things, uh, you actually get told not to contradict their delusion. Sure, I understand that. Um, you have to go with it. But then you give him one mask. He makes one mask. He's already made one. You let him keep that. You don't give him other potential weapons, and yeah. you don't give him other tools to make more masks. And you try and wean him off the ma He never seems to try and actually wean him off the masks. Yeah. It's like... And then he goes, oh, he's putting up barriers. No shit, mate. Great work. Yeah. And it's, again, it, this is not the fault of Malcolm McDowell. It's not Malcolm McDowell's not a real psychologist. This is a, <laughs> this is a fault. You don't know. <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what he majored in at uni. <laughs> in which case, he should have seen the, the problem that it was in the script. But yeah, it, it's an issue with the script. The main issues I have with this film are script and direction, weirdly enough. Um... I don't think a lot of it was necessary. The script, I don't think, is strong enough to do the story it's trying to tell. And a lot of the shots... And actually, I'm going to give um, Rob Zombie this. I actually like the direction and the cinematography in the second film more than this one. Mm. Uh, because he's a lot of shaky cam in this one. Yeah, this is almost like just... Basic, it's what... It's so what I think I would have done in college if someone... Oh, make a slashes film, Rory. Mm. And, you know, just wobbly cam everywhere. Oh, my God, zoom ins. Oh, my God, keep cut in. You know, it's like... Yeah. It's, it, it, it doesn't feel like a professionally made movie. No. One it bit where I like... just liked, has a budget. Yeah, one bit where I liked the camera works. We always try and find something positive yeah, yeah, to yeah. say about the negative films. Um, in the scene, in the, in the scene that is otherwise pointless, in the truck stop, when he attacks Ken Forry, who's is on that the not toilet. In the second one? No, this is the first one. Truck stop. Ken, Ken Forry, the, the black gentleman on the toilet. Oh, Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The camera work in that scene works very well when Michael is... Because Michael's like slamming him through the side of the toilet, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And they do this little thing. It's, a, it's such a small thing, but it really works, where there's a little jump in the camera every, every time, time Michael slams, slams it. it. That and works. It, it works to make that feel so much more impactful. Yes. So I'm going to give them that. Yeah, no, I'll agree. <laughs> Actually, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Um... It, yeah, I, it's such a shame because this, it just doesn't work as a film, in my opinion. There is, I've seen this film three times now, um, and it's worth noting we watched the unrated edition this time, yes. because that's the version I happen to have on DVD, which means it has the incredibly pointless rape scene in it um, that adds nothing at all. My biggest problem... <laughs> Right, I'm going to say a positive thing about Rob Zombie, and then I'm going to say what I disagree with. Here's a positive thing about Rob Zombie. I can honestly say that he is fiercely independent in what he likes. Yes. I've seen nearly every film Rob Zombie has ever done, and he is clearly someone who does what he wants to do. 
and and he did say in an interview that I've I watched with him, he is someone who would even if you offered him his say you offered him a budget of like a hundred million and said you can make whatever film you want but this studio exec is going to keep coming in and changing everything he would especially after having done halloween he'd rather walk away yeah and go and crowdfund something smaller than do that so i i respect him for that yeah however i personally I don't like this aesthetic. They call it the hellbilly aesthetic, don't they? Yeah. This hellbilly aesthetic he's got, where every character is a psychopath. Michael Myers doesn't even seem that bad in this movie. No. The, the orderlies at the sanatorium, other than Danny Trejo, who's shown to be the only nice one, um, the two other ones with the long hair who come in and rape this female patient yeah they're they're hooligans yeah they're dancing around the room smashing beer bottles um and, and i'm not even going to repeat what they say because i think we could probably get fucking cancelled if we did yeah like uh, st- uh taken off of spotify or something um it's just a very bad it, it's it, it's, it's a very badly conceived idea for we, a for, for a scene in a halloween movie it's almost as if rob zombie believes that the world and maybe he does and i hope not because this seems like a terrible way to live your life but it's almost like rob zombie believes that everyone around him is just a hooligan waiting to be unleashed yeah. but also that by putting a scene like that in it maybe the idea was to make he, michael myers a little bit more sympathetic because yeah, I, because look, at but, least he's only killing people. Well, no, yeah, it's it's like because he kills. I don't think he kills the woman. He just kills the two rapists, right? Which is Michael Myers, feminist icon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Though it's like, oh, he in that scenario, you're like, yeah, go Michael Myers. You, you know what I mean? Friend. It's like, what the hell? Like, why are you making me root for the? Oh. Serial killer, because yeah, I'd take the serial killer killing do, the rapist. I want to do a, I would. I want to do a sketch now where Freddie, Jason, and Michael are at the bar having drinks, and Michael's trying to convince them to, to change their misogynistic ways. Yeah. <laughs> Freddie, Freddie, buddy, buddy, you know I like, I like what you do, man. But like, why are you always got to be calling them a bitch all the time? Because <laughs> Freddie does that a lot. Freddie calls yeah, yeah. his victims a bitch a lot. Like when he's like, "Welcome to prime time, bitch." <laughs> Um. <laughs> it's a very strange series of choices, and am I right? And thinking also, this is the first Rob Zombie film you've ever seen as it well. It is the first film I've seen um, of his. What I will say is, I also don't understand, and I, this is something that is a writer's choice. And I know he writes pretty much all of his stuff, and he wrote this. Though again, it got befuddled by studio execs. But this we, we're assuming some, we don't know for definite. But. I don't think this it is... It could a, just be that he... From what you've told me, this is him all the way through and through. Yeah. There are no real sympathetic characters in it. Like, yeah. Michael Myers, he's trying to make sympathetic in certain scenes, but none of the victims are particularly nice, decent people. And I'm not talking about in a an old Christian sort of, a middle America sort of, you know, way... Yeah. I'm just talking about in general. They all seem kind of blech. And, you know, everyone's breaking into homes they shouldn't be breaking into just to bone and then getting murdered you, in it. You say just to bone like it's not the greatest thing on planet Earth. Yeah, but in a serial killer's old house? Hey, 
We're not kink shaming on this podcast. I'm not kink shaming, but, but it's odd that everyone in the flipping yeah. film is doing it. Yeah, uh, I, I can only get off if I'm like fucking on a serial killer's grave. You man. know what? You got a couple that likes the kink, you go for it. But like everyone in the town has the kink. America's a horny place. <laughs> it's all those years of Christian repression. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But yeah, I think. Um, but I don't there's think also a- no one who's particularly warm. No, I agree. I agree. There's, there's very little warmth. To be honest, there's little warmth in any Rob Zombie film. He His films always have a, a, a cruelty to them. Yeah. They're very cold, harsh movies, a lot of them. Which is why The Monsters, I'll give him this, The Monsters is very different. It's not good. <laughs> but it's very different to everything else he's ever done. Okay. Uh, but we'll get there. Oh, boy, will we get there. So I think... Um, I think there's probably nothing more specific to say about the first Halloween. Sure, let's move on to the um, second. I think we both agree. I think, summing up this first one, I think we both agree um, it was not a successful attempt no. at a movie. Um, and it is, it is definitely, in my opinion, this one and the next one are the two worst films in the Halloween franchise. I prefer the next something. one. And I don't like it a lot, but it is more memorable than this one. Well, this, this is a- literally the most beige horror movie I've ever seen. So the next one, actually, we're going to get into right now because there's an interesting to compare this one to the 2018 one, but we'll talk about it in a minute. So moving on to Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. This was made in 2009. It sees Scout Taylor Compton return as Laurie Strode, along with Tyler Mayne, Malcolm McDowell, Brad Dourif, Danielle Harris, and Sherry Moon Zombie. Um, Again, produced by the Weinstein Company. Nowhere near as successful. Uh, this one was made on a budget of $15 million and grossed only $39.4 million. So still still made money, yeah. but when you think that that last one was $80 million, that's quite the drop. It's, in fact, it's half. Do you think it's because most of the people that were excited to see the Rob Zombie Halloween series watched well, the first but, one yeah, yeah, and definitely. went, nah. Definitely, because I remember, if you got remember, I'm a big fan of these franchises, and I was much more, because I had more time on my hands back then, because I was a teenager, I used to go on a Halloween, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th fan site every day, and there was all this build-up and excitement to the first Rob Zombie Halloween coming out, and it was incredibly divisive. Mm. There were some people that come out and they were like, Fuck yeah, this is brilliant. It feels raw and gory and adult. And, and and they were the sort of fans who, again, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm not saying they're stupid or anything like that. But they primarily in a film want gore and violence. Fine, that's what you're after. Rob Zombie gave you that. Yeah, that's true. A lot of other people, myself included, were disappointed by it because we were like, well, this doesn't feel like Michael Myers. It feels more like Jason, if anything. Um, And you've kind of given him Jason's backstory of being a bullied child. Um, And you've now made him fucking eight feet tall and strong as an ox. Like, what is the difference, really, between this version of Michael Myers and Jason? Yeah. Nothing, really. Anyway, let's see what the critics said about this one. So based on 81 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, it has 23%, slightly lower than the other one. Uh, The consensus reads, Zombie shows flashes of vision in the follow-up to his Halloween reboot, but they're smothered by mountains of gore and hackneyed brutal violence. Rob Nelson of Variety felt the use of Deborah and the White Horse was nothing more than silly, and he disagreed with Zombie's choice to shoot Halloween 2 on 16mm film, as opposed to the wider format of 35mm that he used on his 2007 remake. Nelson also stated that the hospital scene was nothing more than a butcher 
extended version of Carpenter's 1981 sequel. Um, you obviously wouldn't know this, but Carpenter's Halloween 2 is all set in a hospital. Right. Um, that and, scene was pretty trash. Yeah. Um, yeah. Except the rain. I liked the rain. Oh, the rain's cool. Um, let's see what else did they say. The Boston Globe's Tom Russo had varied reactions to the film. Russo pointed out that Zombie attempted to be more inventive with Halloween 2, yep. but only achieved mixed results for his efforts. Mm-hmm. Russo referred to the dream sequences of Deborah Myers and the White Horse as pretentiously silly. Yep. I kind of agree. Yeah. But agreed that the scenes did help break up the standard genre violence, and even went so far as to compare the sensation created by these scenes to Tim Burton doing straight horror. Yeah. In the end, Russo claimed that only the most hardcore fans would want the film series to continue. So, I agree I with a lot of what they're saying. I still think the inventiveness is what makes this one a little bit more interesting for me. There's some uh, better camera angles in it for starters. Yeah, the camera shots, some of the lighting is better. I did notice the switch to 16mm. It made the film look a lot more gritty, which I yeah. kind of appreciated, um, considering that that's the vibe it's going for. Uh, now, that's not to say this film doesn't have bad choices. It's got quite a few. Um, it seems a bit odd that, again, you've made a, a slasher film. It's two hours long, and there's about a 15-minute sequence in the hospital that was mentioned, uh, and it's all basically non-existent because it's, it's a dream, dream sequence. sequence. Now, you could have chopped that up a little bit more and done pieces of that as multiple dreams because she has multiple dreams throughout the film and splashed that a little bit more and yeah. shot it a little bit more um, artistically to make sure that the dream world is a little bit more distinct. Because yeah. there's a couple of the dream worlds that are very distinct. There's one where she goes and sees pumpkin-headed face people uh, that are very out of a Tim Burton-esque animation. Yeah, and I was fine with that, yeah, except it works. This, isn't, this isn't the right film for it. No, but... The, that, that doesn't belong in a Halloween movie. That belongs in something much more psychedelic. Yeah, but the, the, the fact is you would never have seen those films and gone, oh, this must be the real world. So yeah. if he'd maybe taken some of that stylizing and put that in the all the dream sequences and then split up this big one at the beginning uh, across the films across yeah. the film with um her slowly her slow descent into madness yeah. it would have worked a lot better i think um now there are some great camera angles with some really cool lighting decisions uh that work quite well uh silhouetting certain things or pointing out certain things this still isn't a beautiful looking film by any measure but it is a lot more interesting to look at. Um, and for that, I, I give praise. Uh, a lot more praise yeah. than the beigeness of the first one. What do we think about Hobo Michael Myers? Mm. He's, got a ho- he's got a hood on the entire time. He kind of looks like hillbilly. Techno Viking looking for a rave. He kind of looks like Rob Zombie with the long hair and the beard. Yep. And it's like, oh, what's, what's going on now? I, th- I think he's uh, putting himself too much into Mike Myers, I think. Yeah, <laughs> maybe Rob Zombie's in there, but I am Mike Myers. <laughs> I must become Michael to Myers. defeat Michael Myers. You must become Michael Myers. It, yeah, it's it's a different aesthetic to what we're used to in the films. Yeah, uh, Michael's mask is completely fucked up in this one. Mm. He spends most of the film hidden under a hood. Um, where's Michael been for a year? Yeah, he's just he's... been wandering as Mister Hobo. Yeah, like it's. I mean, that's no weirder, to be fair, than Halloween Ends that we just watched. Yeah, where he just lives for four years. Yeah, he, he just lived in a sewer for four years. Like, yeah. it, it's very weird when you do time jumps in a Halloween movie. Yeah, I'd, it would be nice if they were going to do it. Either keep it completely ethereal that he just for some fucking reason turns up at Halloween. Mm. Or if you're going to explain it, at least make it something that 
makes more sense. Yeah. He's a serial killer, not a sewer rat or a, a hobo street rat. Yeah, and like hitchhiking his way across America back to the town he started in when he, in the last film. Like, you know, in Halloween H2O, <laughs> in Halloween H2O, we are meant to believe Michael Myers has walked on foot over the course of several years from. Um, oh no, I think this is in Halloween Resurrection, actually. We're supposed to believe that over the course of a year, he walks from Los Angeles to Chicago. Right. Maybe he could have done. I don't know if that's a walkable distance in a year. But, but you're telling me in the whole year, no one stops Michael Myers. Yeah, he stands out a little bit, doesn't he? Maybe he was on his gap year. Maybe. <laughs> I just thought he was a sweaty, greasy student yeah. with a half-melted face and a missing eye. Um, I mean, the yeah, other thing let's... that doesn't make sense in this as well is with within uh, Halloween 2, or the, the, this Halloween 2, um, Mike Myers is phenomenally tall. Like, he's insanely tall, and he's not a skinny man. He's no. built like a brick shit house. No, this is Tyler Mayne playing him, yeah. same as the last one. Yep. So uh, audiences might also know Tyler Mayne mostly as playing Sabretooth in the first X-Men film. Yeah. He's that guy. So he's tall, he's muscular, he's imposing, and half the time, though it seems to be inconsistent, he's wearing a mask. And other times he looks like a really angry Viking. Mm. Right? The whole time. And yet every single person he meets in this film, bar none, walks up to him looking small and squirmy. No matter how tall they are, he's always taller. Uh, goes up to him, he's like, hey, motherfucker, I'm going to dick you up with my... You will fucking talk to me, you dickhead. Well, I'm going to smash the shit out. And you're like... Everyone is this stupid. Hey, there ain't no pussies in Rob Zombie's Halloween. Yes, they are. They They're all get all... killed by Michael Myers. Yeah, but but be... It's the Darwin Awards at work. But you've got to think, oh, like, yeah. surely one of not... these people goes, yeah, that guy doesn't look particularly least... pussy. I'm going to just like go back least... to my car and drive away. But at least they weren't wimps, man. Well, they were. They died, they died with dignity and honour. There's no dignity of getting shanked in the middle of a car <laughs> park because you couldn't keep your mouth closed. Exactly. Um, okay, let's talk about the artsy fartsy bits and the pretentiously silly Because it's not like he was swearing at them because he doesn't talk. No, I know. <laughs> Let, let's talk about the pretentiously silly bits with the white horse. Yes. Right, first of all, if you need to put an explanation for your symbolism at the start of your film, yeah. the symbolism doesn't work. Yeah, it actually states right at the start, the white horse in this, represents blah, blah, blah. You're like, all right, mate, thanks for that. If it was that easy, we'd all have passed off film degrees. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, oh, by the way, the bit where there's a red... Can you imagine, could you imagine turning on Schindler's List and it goes, hey guys, so the whole film's in black and white except for this one little girl's red coat and what that represents. No, come on. Yeah. Could you imagine? It's it, it, A lot of this it kind of goes in with how he's written the script, certainly in the first one as well. He, he doesn't seem to respect that an audience can keep up with his writing. So he feel, like it almost seems to have to overly explain everything. And it's like, Rob, people can understand your symbolism. People can understand where you're going with the story without you having to explain it five different ways. Yeah. Just trust the audience will come with you. Um, it... it, it this is a problem we keep having. People seem to treat the audience nowadays like they're absolute morons. You have to go for lowest common denominator now. But I think people can always, understand half of it that anyway. That has always been the Weinstein Company's thing, if you watch any Weinstein film. 
they've always been very like, you can't trust the audience, the audience are all morons. I agree, it's wrong, and they, they don't give audiences enough credit yeah. at all. Um, yeah, it, I don't even understand what the symbolism is meant to be, because both him and Laurie are seeing it, so it's like, wait, do they have some sort of psychic connection? Well, they is do, because they're related. And she I don't have a psychic connection with my sister. No, and she was a baby when all the murders and everything happened. But now she, um, in one of her dreams, she imagines killing her, what, the other surviving woman from the first film. Exactly the way that William Forsyth is killed in the first film. Yeah, by Michael Myers. While she was still a baby, she'd have no memory of that anyway. But is she's maybe meant to be a repressed memory. Maybe? But she wasn't even downstairs at the time because he comes and gets her after he murders everyone from the crib. After he murders Yeah, after the murder. So she is down there before he gets her. No, she's not. He gets her from her crib, I believe, in the first one. I thought she was in the little bassinet thing. Well, she wasn't down there watching it. Okay, fair she enough. Because he opens the door. Okay, okay fair, enough, um, fair enough, fair enough. So she wouldn't have that memory. She wouldn't have the memory necessarily of her mother because her mother killed herself while she was a baby. So, but all of a sudden, at the end, she's seeing the mother the same way that um, Michael, Michael Myers is and she obviously sees her younger self dressed in the Michael Myers child clown costume yep. that she would never have seen because she was a baby true true so true. like the symbolism start like it's fine to have that symbolism in it but if you're gonna go so hard on symbolism it needs to make sense um, and just put in an explanation of a white horse at the beginning of your film doesn't do that no how, how do we feel about the representation of Loomis in this film? It's quite a different take on Loomis to what we're used to. So he had a semi-Americanish accent in the first one, and then all of a sudden in this one he's super British and asks for PG tips, uh, which I'm going to assume is a direction thing, or maybe Michael McDowell went, look, I hate doing American accent, can I just be British? Um, could be. Yeah, that could very well be. I've heard of several films before where actors ask to just drop um, accent. Liam Neeson only agreed to do that Seth MacFarlane film he did if he could use his natural Irish accent. Yes. And um, Which, to be fair, in an American cowboy film, there yeah. were Irish people. And pro probably the most high-profile example I can think of of a character changing accents between films is Elizabeth Olsen in the MCU as Scarlet Witch. Right. In her first appearance in Age of Ultron, she's got a really thick Eastern European accent. And she doesn't by the time she gets to One Division. Yeah, it, she very. It, it's quite interesting because she slowly fades it out as the films go along, and you uh, and you get this lovely halfway point. And by lovely, I mean funny halfway point where she's mostly speaking in her natural voice, and then every now and again will say something like "paprikash," <laughs> and you're like, "What? <laughs> what was that, Elizabeth Olsen?" <laughs> It's silly, isn't it? Just drop the accent. Like to be honest, the accents were unnecessary from the beginning. Um, there's, there's no need, other than the fact their characters' names are Maximov, and they're from, they are from an Eastern European country. Yeah. To be fair, um, but you know what? If they can't do the accent, just roll with it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, um, yeah. Um, it's weird to see Loomis. 
What I mean more is in, in every other His Halloween... personality. Yeah, in every other film, Loomis is very much a heroic character. Uh, obviously, you've only seen the original, not the other ones. But he's always coming to rescue the people. Yeah. Like that, he is... I'm not going to lie. His character does not change at all in any of those sequels. He's exactly the same as he is in the first one. He's constantly coming into Haddonfield and being like, Evil is here! Um, <laughs> and people don't listen to him until it's too late. And then once the bodies have stacked up enough, they finally listen to him and he leads an, a little mob to go and kill Michael Myers. Um, the only difference is with each film, he obviously in real life, Donald Pleasant's ages. So he becomes more and more of just a crazy old man <laughs> until in the, in the sixth one, he's literally got like a white Santa beard and he's really fucking old. I mean, he literally died while they were filming it. Um, and he's, he's just running around being like, Michael's here, Michael. <laughs> and you're like, dude. Well, within it, this, it, the first one, he's... I mean, a crap psychologist, but he's a sympathetic psychologist. Yeah, and he kind of is still trying to be the hero in that first yeah, one. Yeah, and then in this second one, well, this, it's kind of a tale of two Loomises, because he's mostly a complete self-absorbed, egotistical douchebag just trying to sell a book. Yeah, he's money-hungry, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, but he chops and changes on that a little bit here and there. So in his first appearance in this film... Um, he's got this publicist who's obviously working hard for him with the media. She starts saying about this cool new way of synthesis, like working alongside uh, the journalists and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, did you just use cool and journalists and some other word all in one sentence? Like it's honest. Yeah. It's and an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron. Like, obviously, oh, the journalists are scummy. That's why they pump up these stories. And then the next time we see him, he's outside, I think it's Michael Myers' home. Or is outside some home where people have been murdered, doing a news interview with this woman that is this newscaster he's flirting with, and his publicist is suddenly like, "Oh, isn't this immoral? Isn't it? Like, it doesn't matter about morality. What matters in the media is to get this." It's like, "Oh, so you don't hate the media as disgusting and immoral? Yeah. You're kind of with them." He's a little bit like, but not done nearly as well as. Gail Weathers in Scream, Courtney Cox's character. Yes. So I know you've not seen the Scream sequel. I've seen the first one. But in Scream 2, she has written a book about the first one. Right. And has misrepresented certain things. Um, So, like, for example, in particular, Dewey, David Arquette's character, she is described as being an incompetent policeman in her book. Right. Because she basically seduces him in the first one to get information, doesn't she? Yeah. And it works. So she basically bears all that in this book. So when he meets her, he's like... um, Thanks a lot for writing that. She's like, oh, come on, man, come on. And she's eagerly trying to set uh, Neve Campbell's character, Sydney, up with the man that she falsely accused of being the killer right. before we find out who it was. Yeah. That's done a lot better, but it's it's similar to... I feel like Rob Zombie was going for that. Sure. Fair she enough. doesn't pull it off as well. No. Um, I think that's probably the tale of a lot of the better parts of this film as well unfortunately yeah there's um, a whole sequence in the middle that was reportedly uh reportedly forced into the film by the weinsteins which is a bit where we get it's a, it's it's in a strip, strip club it's a strip with, club that michael myers mum worked at in the first one yeah with future uh, rob zombie collaborators um i actually don't know their names off the top of my head. i think one is lou diamond phillips i think and the other one's dan something i might be wrong i might have their names completely wrong but um it's these two actors who would later be in the monsters. Um, 
and it's basically a scene that has no relevance except to get more deaths on the death count. Yeah. Um, and that is literally why it, why it was added, apparently. The Weinsteins apparently were like, not enough people die in this movie. Yeah, we need so more death. There's only three characters, two male, one female. Um, they all die in the scene that they're introduced in, mm. and Michael Myers moves on. And it's Which, never- to be fair, this is something that happens in slashers. You haven't seen it, and you probably never will, because I don't think we'll ever cover this one. But I have told you, and I'm sure you remember, my infamous story about Friday the 13th Part 3, I think it is, where, where the whole film just kind of cuts away from the main action to a fat girl on the side of the road eating a banana. Jason just comes out of the woods and kills her. For no reason. She's, <laughs> she's, she's got no name. I don't think she has any dialogue. She's just a fat chick hitchhiking down a road, stops for a banana, and Jason just comes out of the woods, murks her, and walks off again. Just so they can get the death count up. Stupid. Anything's, um, anything's a reason for Jason to kill you. Oh, so dumb. Um, again, things like that just make me not interested. Oh, if it's a fat girl eating a banana. It sounds funny, oh, but it, it sounds funny. like something you'd put in a comedy, not a horror film. Oh, yeah, you can't take slashers seriously as horrors. They're not. Although, basically... But, uh, the Halloween general... 2018 was good as a horror. I'm talking 80s slashers here. Uh. Generally speaking, the rule with 80s slashers is take the first film seriously, everything else devolves into parody. Which is why you don't watch the sequels. You do when they're good, though. But they're not. The Nightmare on Elm Street ones are. They're You've really told me good. yourself most of them are trash. No, 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 no. The sixth one is trash. Right. And even the sixth one... I thought you didn't ha- like the fourth one either. No, I love the fourth one. The fourth one's my favourite one. Oh. Um, the fourth one, Dream Master's amazing. And even the sixth one, I'll give Elm Street this, even the sixth one, yes, it might be trash in the sense that it is not scary at all and you're basically watching a comedy film, but it is orders of magnitude more inventive. Well, there's the catchphrase. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> way, way, way more inventive than either of these two films, for starters. Yeah. Um, I mean, it literally has a whole bit where it parodies The Wizard of Oz in a slasher movie. Right. Um, and it's hilarious. It, it has the power glove, Rory. I mean, you didn't rate The Wizard highly, and that has the power glove in it yeah. as a story yeah, point. Because all they do with that power glove is be like... Oh, yeah. I'm no, it has the best line in the film. I love the power glove. I love it's the power glove. It's so bad. I got arrested for paedophilia later in my later, career. He did later. That wasn't a good look. In Nightmare on Elm Street, <laughs> in Elm Street 6, <laughs> Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, the power glove is used to murder Brecken Meyer. Who's Brecken? You know Brecken Meyer. You've seen him in something. I guarantee okay. he's in loads of things. Did he break um, it? No. I've got well, a yeah. Brecken. It's really cool. <laughs> And then the guy dies and he's like screaming in agony because he's dead. And all Freddy can say is, hey, I beat my eyes score. You'll love Six. It's full of puns. I know, but I don't understand why you then like it. Because you Because hate Freddy's puns. making the puns. Oh, that's not There's fair. There's a big difference between Freddy making the puns and you making the puns. Yeah, I'm you real. To, and I've come laugh. up with them on the fly. You have to laugh when Freddy does it. He's got knives for fingers. He'll kill you. So if I have knives for fingers, you'd laugh at my puns? Well, I'd have to, wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. Well, no <laughs> choice. Anybody want to send me a Freddy Krueger glove? We'll test this theory, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway. Oh, oh. I'm Rory. I'm too lazy to glue my own knives to my fingers. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> Thing is, I'm joking. You know, there was a guy who did that. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. not. I'm, I'm not crazy yet. I'm not we, crazy. You're all crazy. We all, we all go a little mad sometimes. <laughs> Do you know what line that's from? No, that's from Psycho. 
oh, I haven't seen Psycho in years. I need to watch it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's great. Great film, Psycho. Mm. I think we're going to yeah. do Psycho at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great film. I'm looking forward um, to that. Anyway, back to Halloween 2. <laughs> For the love of God, back to Halloween 2. Okay, so let's compare this directly to 2018. I'm going to tell you why I want to compare it to 2018. Rob Zombie has, all, has said in multiple interviews that his intention with this movie was to focus less on Michael Myers and more on Laurie Strode's trauma of having survived that first film. Sure. That is obviously what 2018 is as well. Yes, and much more successful at it, the 2018 So this film. is what I was going to ask us to discuss. Okay. What are the relative successors of each? Is it any success in this one? No. Um, she just seems a bit whiny, don't she? She's, I mean, the squeaky voice doesn't help, but I'm, I'm not trying to be mean, but... When she's squeaky, and then all Sounds she like do- you're being offensive to the differently voiced. <laughs> it does sound a bit, but this is my reason, right? She's got a squeaky voice anyway, and then all of the way that her trauma is shown in the film is making the woman with the squeaky voice scream. There is no depth. There is no quiet moments with the horror or or, or the trauma. Yeah, it's all screaming. She has vivid dream. Wakes up. It's very then, base. Yeah, and then she goes into the shower and she starts having another dream and convulses and ah! very surface. Everything is scream. Whereas in uh, twenty eighteen, when Laurie watches, like we get a lot of her trying to live a quote unquote normal enough yeah. life we, with we her see family. See how the paranoia is affecting her. Yeah, and then when she watches Michael Myers on the bus leave the the safety of the prison and to his ultimate, uh, like you know, because she the trauma of it, she doesn't sit in the car going. She sits there, she's quiet, and then she has this slow breakdown where the trauma and the fear just starts to take over her because he's out. Even though he's still meant to be, like, secured within the bus, he's out of the prison. And she just starts to tremble and cry and have that breakdown. And it's quiet, it's slow, it's methodical, and it shows the trauma Rob Zombie doesn't really seem to know how to show trauma outside of showing someone screaming. Yeah. And it's a, it, because of that, it's a monotone performance. Now, again, probably not the fault of the actress because that's how it's directed and written. But it is monotonous that yeah. every time we cut to Laurie, she's screaming. I end up just thinking shut the hell up as I'm watching the second half of this film I get that that's my same problem with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah it's just screaming yeah and it's at a certain point you're like okay I don't care if Leatherface kills you at this point yeah Um, (laughs) Burst City a Japanese indie film cyberpunky film has a very similar problem one of the most annoying aspects of that film is it's three storylines one of them is about two mentally handicapped people on a motorbike and sidecar um, and the younger, um, so the the one who rides the bike has like a paper, a metal plate, sorry, in his head, uh, but he's mostly quiet and grunts a little bit. And the one in the sidecar looks a lot younger. He's got spiky black hair, um, and anytime he's in a scene, he literally just goes <laughs> the whole time through the scene. And there's points where you're just like, and it, like, even if other people are talking and they've moved away, he, even though he's in the background, you'll just be hearing him going, oh. in the background of a scene while they're having dialogue. And you're like, Look, I, I know that character may be doing this, but maybe just tone it down to the background yeah. audio 
while we focus on this bit of the scene, mm. um, but also maybe do a little bit less of it. Like, yeah. it's not a problem that you put it in there to show that this character has mental handicap issues and struggles to communicate. But when it's constant, it's just an attack on the senses. Yeah. And it's not fun. And it doesn't yeah. add anything. So, coming up to the ending of Halloween 2, this is a bit of a weird one where, basically, uh, Michael Myers finds where Laurie is, he drags her out of the car, takes her to this shack in the middle of the thing, and he can hallucinate his mum and his younger self, but Laurie is also hallucinating the mum and the younger self. And all she's doing is sitting there screaming! And she, she thinks the younger self, the younger Michael Myers is holding her down, but really she's obviously just doing that herself. All the coppers turn up and surround the building, uh, but they can't get a shot at Michael Myers. Uh, Loomis turns up and he's like, Michael, Michael, please. Michael is standing for none of that shit and kills Loomis. Again, um, he actually kills him in the first film, but he comes yeah, back for this. Yeah. And mm. then... Also, Michael doesn't really succeed in killing many people in this double, double bill. Because in the first one, he kills the girl who ended up surviving with... Mm. Um, with uh, Annie. Yeah, Annie. So he kills Annie. She's back. Yeah. Uh, he tries to kill... He kills Loomis, and he's back. I'm pretty certain he kills the cop they live with in this film, uh, no, and I he's th back. I, I think you might have been wrong on that, because when I looked, because I, I looked up to see if there was an explanation sure. for that, and it does say with Annie and Loomis, it goes, somehow having survived, but with Bracket, it just doesn't mention that. So all. maybe it was another cop. So I'm thinking it was just another generic cop, maybe. Right, okay. But the point is, they can't get a shot. He turns up, Michael kills him. But even in this, he kills Annie again, but she's not dead. She bleeds out. She's dead at the end of this. Yeah, one, yeah, isn't no, she? but he. She, well, we don't know because if they made a third one, she might be back. But well, like he, he stabs the crap out of her, and then he disappears. Um, and Laurie and what's her name come back to the house and find her, and she's still alive, bleeding out oh, on the floor. Come on, he's a busy serial killer. He ain't got time to wait for them to bleed out. Why didn't he just stab her to death? What's he doing well, wasting he time? That, what do you think's killing her? All the stamp wounds. She could have survived if the ambulance had got there quick okay, enough. So if I shoot you with a poison dart now, yeah. and you don't die till later tonight because it takes that long for the poison, have I not killed you? That's not the point. No, <laughs> He's a serial killer. In the other films, he stabs them through the spleen and all the way up them and fucking cuts their throats apart to a point where they're not salvageable no matter what. Mm. In this, he just hey, slices their faces mate. a bit and goes, mm, I've done my... He's playing noughts and crosses on their face. As, as the David Gordon Green trilogy t t uh, taught us, you could survive fucking anything, apparently, because that woman should not have survived having that light tube shoved through her throat. Yeah, and that she was did. That would, But that only happens to the one character, and this is almost everyone he tries to kill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, mate, you're the worst, in my, well, the most ineffective serial killer. Yeah. Or the so most ineffective version the, of Michael. So then the ending we get, basically, is Michael gets shot, falls onto what looks like a pitchfork and sticks to his chest. Yeah, it's not really clear what is behind him that he slides onto. Farming equipment. Yeah. <laughs> Generic farming <laughs> equipment. <laughs> That's she, all she shanks him a few times with his own knife. Yeah. Then she wanders outside wearing his mask. Yeah, which makes no sense. She doesn't put it on visually in the film. She just stabs the crap out of him screaming, because of course she's screaming. And then the next scene is her coming out, the mask already on. Yeah, which, to be fair, you know what would have annoyed me more? 
Because I thought what Rob Zombie was going for was like, a, oh, they're going to shoot her thinking she's Michael. Yeah. And if they'd have done that, that would have pissed me off because I'm sorry, even with the mask <laughs> on, fucking five foot two Scout Taylor Compton <laughs> looks nothing like six foot ten Tyler Maine. No, not like, at all. You know what I mean? The mask looked ridiculous on her as well. It was way oversized. Yeah, well, that's like when the kid wears it in the first one. And yeah, it just it, looks comical, it doesn't looks it? stupid. Uh, do you reckon William Shatner gets residuals every time they use this mask? <laughs> oh, hey. I bet he tried, even if he doesn't. <laughs> oh, I bet he did. I, I actually have seen an interview with him uh, where, if I remember right, he actually isn't very happy about that. Oh, come like, on. He's, he's immortalised in cinema I'm, already for Star Trek. He doesn't need to worry that people I'm, remember I'm him sh- for... I'm sure, I'm sure I've seen an interview where they're asking him about the mask. And maybe he was joking, but with William Shatner, you can never tell because he's that much of an egotist. Um I'm sure there's a bit where he's like, yeah, and they never paid me royalties for it, neither. <laughs> and you're like, dude, calm down. Okay, you've been to space, man. Space. Well, near space. He went into space, he didn't did he? He did not go into space. I thought he went into space. No, he did not. Don't take away his only great achievement. Well, he. If the thing is as well, though, it made him hate sci-fi. Oh, I know. He yeah. found it terrifying, didn't he? Yeah, he realised that, that so it's cool. so void. It, there's such a void out there. It's not a mystery. It's scary. That was so cool to read in a way, yeah. though, because space is scary. Yeah. Space is terrifying. Yeah. Anywho. It's the vacuum of anything. But yeah, no. Um, the, so, those, those, those trips don't actually get to space. They go to very high upper atmosphere near space, right. but they don't actually break atmosphere. I'm sure he didn't hop over the line once. What, just jump? Just <laughs> once? <laughs> no. Because um, it's not a hard line, is it? It's not like the well, it's like, a hard line of atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, there's a physical barrier that would stop you. There is. There's Van Allen belts. That's not a physical barrier. It though, is a is it? physical barrier. It's not a metal wall. Well, that, the Van Allen belt is the metal radiation. Metal isn't the only physical barrier. <laughs> It's more like the white lines on the road. Yeah, you should. Oh, it's go not over quite like there's gravitation. Like you put. Do you know how the atmosphere works? You can bounce off the atmosphere. Yeah, but not. And the, uh, you, you can't they, bounce a rocket ship off the atmosphere. Yes, you can. No, yes, no, you, you can. Can't. yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. From the outside, maybe not coming up. Uh, yes, you can. There's how? there's certain areas of the atmosphere that are thinner, which is what they aim for when they take off and they return. Right. There's actually like it, it, it's there's parts of that atmospheric part that are easier to get through. Mm. So they aim for those like because hole. <laughs> because it costs more fuel and you're more likely to bounce if you try and it's like water water surface. If you step into it slowly, mm. you can break into the water easily. Yeah. But if you skim a rock against it, it will bounce. Yeah. Because the tension of the atmosphere and the pressure. Yeah, you don't the planet has the rocket. same thing. Yes, you can skim a rocket yeah, but, off the atmosphere. But we don't. That's not how we launch them. We just punch No, but when they through. come back, they can skim off from the yeah. outside. When they come back, I know, I'm saying they can when they come back. Yeah. But going up, they don't, do they? They can They can still, like, with wind shear and things like that, they can bounce. Not okay. like not in the same way. It would just mean that it doesn't quite get enough to break atmosphere and then it would drop. Point is, stop ruining an awesome story with the truth. William Shatner went to space, he okay? He got he, near space. He's the first Star Trek captain to go where no man has gone before. He factually got near space. And other people have gone into space yeah. to get to the moon. But everyone knows that factual is just ruining a good story. <laughs> Fine. Remember, we live in a post-truth society now. That much is true. Anyway. Science, bitch! We end... <laughs> yeah. we end 
in a long white corridor that is kind of clearly meant to be a hospital room, but obviously it's way longer. It's, t- it's a bit too long, but actually yeah. for the sequence they do, it's it, it looks cool and it's fine. Yeah, and she hallucinates the mum and the white fucking horse again. Yep. And she literally, it's the ending of Psycho. It's yeah. literally that sort of creepy smile to the camera where it's like, oh, Laurie's evil now. Yeah. There's no, apparently... uni- there's no unique ideas in either of these two films. There is nothing unique in them. It's like he's watched a load of other horror films. He's taken the bits he likes and just slashed them, like sliced them all together into one mm. or two movies. Um, and he's tried to add symbolism, which is a great idea, but it comes off as forced because all the ideas are just copy pastes from other movies, better yeah. movies. Yeah. Um, and I, we actually looked it up, and there was a planned sequel to this that Rob Zombie was not going to do. It's going to be called Halloween 3D, because when your films start losing money, what do you do? You take them 3D, uh, especially at that time in history. Yeah, there was a and, big push for 3D, wasn't there? Like Avatar was the most successful, but loads yeah. of other people started hacking it into their films as well. Oh, yes. And that was apparently going to start with the retcon of the ending of this film, revealing that Laurie had actually killed Loomis, not Michael. Yeah. So I'm guessing Laurie, we, we quite possibly could have got something similar to Halloween Ends. Yeah. But with Laurie instead of Corey. Yeah. Um, Laurie, yeah. Corey, Rory. What? <laughs> <laughs> you never know, it could be a serial killer. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I like that that's just immediately dismissed. Is there anything else to say about... Am I too nice to be a serial killer? No. (laughs) I'll kill people with puns. (laughs) Is there anything else to say about these two movies? They call me the Punisher. Is there anything else to say about these two movies? (laughs) Um, I don't think so, no. The first one is incredibly beige. If you're not partial to slasher movies... Definitely avoid it because it is basically the worst of the slasher movies in one movie. Um, the second one is more interesting, but it's not an interesting movie overall uh, because it's basically good ideas from other films slammed into one film that has is slightly better shot, slightly better directed, um, and slightly more interestingly written, but still fails to make a real impact. Um, if you yeah. It, Coming off from, if, you, if you're going to try and basically do uh, a series for Halloween, I can't speak for Halloween 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, whatever. Um, but I can speak for whether or not you should do Halloween, Halloween this one, and Halloween 2. Or whether you should do Halloween, Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends. Definitely go for the last one. Um, in my opinion, though, again, I can't speak for the original series because I haven't seen those. I don't think you'll like them. No. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I wouldn't, I would never watch these Rob Zombie ones ever again. No, I don't think I will ever watch them again. Um, the, the, I went into these with an open mind because I've always thought of these as the worst Halloween films. And I went in with an open mind. That's the whole point of this show. Sure. And I'm I'm leaving with my mind not changed. In fact, if anything, I actually like them even less. Wow. <laughs> than I did when I started. So I'm afraid these are still the worst of the Halloween movies, in my opinion. Even even Halloween Resurrection. I know this is a controversial opinion. Halloween Resurrection, which is the one that has Buster Rhymes fighting Michael Myers, see that sounds funny. Is more entertaining than this. Yeah. Because it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. We've given it a shot. Unfortunately, this time it wasn't successful. Um, 
But that shouldn't be a downer for your Halloween celebrations. Have a lovely Halloween, everyone. Um, whatever you're doing, whether you're going out trick-or-treating, going to parties, or just staying in watching spooky movies, this is Jamie and Rory saying happy Halloween to everyone. And we will see you on the next episode of Second Take Cinema. How ghoulish.